You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Good morning. Hear the word of the Lord. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time, and as they rejoice when the dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. This is God's word. So, so, so blessed to be with you as we begin Advent. Uh, thankful uh, to be able to take, we want to, as King's Cross Church, uniquely set aside the time in a way that's different than the rest of the year during this Advent season. And um, if you have your phones with you, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 primarily, but barely, because we're on the topic of hope, <laughs> and hope is a big one. Um, if we haven't met, I'm Chad, one of the pastors here with King's Cross. Uh, we do normally teach through books of the Bible, obviously, but with the Advent season, we are going a little bit more thematic um, on topics, specifically the topic of Advent. And the uh, Advent, if you didn't know this, is the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. I looked up the definition. That's what Oxford told me. Um, the de- dictionary. For the church, though, Advent is the time of the year we set aside to celebrate and reflect on the first Advent or first coming of Jesus Christ. When he came into the world as a little baby, his incarnation, God in the flesh. We also, during Advent, look forward with anticipation for the day that he comes again. So during this Advent in particular, we wanted to focus a little differently this this particular year, each week on the themes of the Advent candles, um, drawing particular attention to Christ's impact on our lives in these areas today. And as Aaron has already spoken to, the first candle, also known as the prophecy candle, is a theme of hope. The second candle, known as the Bethlehem candle, is the theme of peace. The third is the shepherd's candle, which is a theme of joy. And the final candle, the angel's candle, not the final, the fourth candle, the angel's candle, is a theme of love. And the final candle is the Christ candle, which is his advent, Christmas Eve. And we celebrate that in the day he, he came. Um, love, we're actually going to be going through these themes. Aaron's going to join us next week uh, as far as preaching from the Bethlehem candle in peace. Uh, joy will follow. And then on love, hopefully you're able to join us uh, at the Ethiopian church. Where we're going to come together in unity um, around the Advent with the Ethiopian fellowship. We're going to join with uh, Batania church. And we're going to worship like it, a little picture of what it looks like around the throne. Um, uh, 
so many nations and different tongues joined together in celebration of our great king. So I'm going to pray as we begin this big topic of hope. And we're going to ask a couple questions and hopefully walk through those today in a way that is helpful, encouraging, and, and poignant to the day in which we live. So if you would pray with me. Father, in your kindness, we're thankful that you give us this opportunity to come together as your body to worship you, to glorify you, to honor you with our lives, with our hopes, with our heart. And God, I pray that the time we have this morning would be glorifying to Christ, that we would lift him up high. And any measure of study and preparation I may have put into this um, will we'll step back so that Christ might be put forward as glorious. And God, all of it in support of his good and glorious name. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, I did the same thing I did with Advent and looked up the definition of hope. Um, because as I was trying to explore this topic and think about preparing this, I admitted to Aaron that even though we are people who should have the most hope, I wrestled with, what are we talking about here? Hope. Uh, in the dictionary, I get several definitions, and I'm going to give them to you with some illustrations. The first is hope as a noun, a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen, right? For example, Chad was watching the Cowboys play the Seahawks in the hope of an easy victory, but the Dallas Cowboys are never a place you should put your hope. No, they squeaked it out in the end. Uh, a noun, a person, or a thing that may help or save, to save someone. Uh, their only hope is surgery. Uh, the noun grounds for believing that something good may happen. Like, for example, he does see some hope for the future. Uh, hope is also a verb. It's very versatile. Uh, it's wants something to happen or to be the case. Maybe like he's hoping for an offer of compensation or he's hoping for a new job. Uh, a verb of intend, if possible, to do something. Maybe we're hoping to address all these issues. We're hoping that I finish this up within the amount of time they have allotted me this morning. No, I'm totally kidding. I hate to set people up for long. It's not going to be that way. Um, and that's why, as we look at this and we consider what is hope, that's the very first question that I thought would be important for us to ask. Like, what exactly is it that we're hoping for as believers? Because we could hope in a lot of things. We, we could look into this world and, and, and maybe in the wrong place, our heart is hoping for something that God never promised. First Peter 3 tells us that as God's people, in verse 15, we should be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And sometimes we read that as just having a real good apologetic, but I want to ask the question of is what is the hope that is in us? If, if, if we have a different expectation from what God actually promises, we're setting ourselves up for failure and for disappointment. Like, for example, we could hope for perfect relationships. I'm sorry, but that's not what God promises. We could hope for wealth, great finances, all of our needs met in this world materially. And that's not what God promises. We could hope for health, like perfect health, which I am quickly finding failing over the years. But that's not what God promises. You could look, hope for a perfect work-life balance, if anyone's ever found that. Like where we are at the job versus my family and how I spend that time. I finally got it down to a science. But that's not what God promises. 
Or you could be super holy and you could say, man, my hope is that my sin's covered and taken care of and I'm getting into heaven. And I kind of like the proposition that's not what God promises either. He does promise to take care of or to take your sin in Christ. But if we're looking only to Christ as our ticket to heaven, then you're also falling far short of what God's accomplishing in him. God's promise, ultimately, I propose to you today is to restore his kingdom. What is his kingdom? Because we've talked about this for so long. We talk about the kingdom of God coming, the advancing of God's kingdom. We talk about the old minor prophets and the kingdom of God. His kingdom is his real presence with his people and the establishment of righteousness, justice, and peace. That's all ways throughout the Old Testament. And it goes back, honestly, to the reason we need that hope of his kingdom, the fall that happened in the garden. So as we say, what is it we're looking for in the hope? I want to walk through Isaiah a second and see where Isaiah is answering the hope that they're looking for. And then I'm going to take a step forward and ask some questions of what does that mean for us today? Okay? Because when we look back at Eden and we see the fall in the garden, we see that as Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God's kingdom, let me take a step back. I think it's important to establish that. I think I'm rushing ahead. Let me just take a step back. When I say God wants to restore his kingdom, remember that in Eden, there was perfect communion and relationship with God and man. He places Adam in the garden. He places Eve in the garden. And it says he walks with him in the cool of the day. Like no hindrances. You're there with him. And there's peace and there's righteousness and there's justice and there's no worries of the world. But for some reason, and probably I don't want to like throw Adam under the bus or Eve under the bus because I feel like I'd be the same one in the same shoes. They were tempted by the serpent and chose to rebel against God's kingdom. That's what happened there. They chose to rebel. God had perfect union between heaven and earth and Eden and they said, ah, there's something he's holding back from us. And when they chose to join in with the enemies of God, God was now, a veil was cast between heaven and earth. A veil was cast. God's full glory in his presence was not with his people anymore. Those he created, it couldn't be there. And we see the rest of the Old Testament is the narrative and a case study where the anguish of the fall engulfs the earth as they rebel against God's kingdom. Think about the 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 consequences of the fall. There's anguish and childbearing. Quite literally, the pain there just, just turn out a little bit harder. It's anguish. I think there's a good argument said that the pain and childbearing doesn't stop once you give birth. Hmm? All those who raise kids or maybe involved with it. Huh? Yeah? Right? Yeah. A life with children, there is blessing. Children are a blessing, but those years are marked by joys and sorrows. There's anguish and work as Adam is working the ground and trying to make a living on this earth that God made. There's anguish in the relationship between man and woman and honestly between everyone else. And immediately we see the anguish overtake humanity as a brother kills his brother. As women are barren and rejected and loved less than the other. As men rise up against men, as people murder and hate one another, as sin is seen to permeate all the Old Testament and 
Over and over again, humanity's yearning, I tell you from the gate, from beginning, is a yearning for the restoration of what was lost in Eden. Look at Isaiah 9, 2 through 5. What is it that he says comes to bear? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressors, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. There will be peace. There will be light. Even as Micah said, this, that, that Advent starts in the dark because once they fell in Edom, dark, Eden, darkness covered the earth. And what Isaiah says is, those who are walking in darkness have seen a great light. They're longing for something more. I don't even have time to go to all of the prophecies, but constantly the prophets are either calling the people to draw near and close to the presence of God in obedience to what he's commanded them to do and simultaneously pointing them to a hope of a future of God's fully restored kingdom. And then we see Jesus come. Look at verse six. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. All of a sudden, in the midst of all of these prophecies, the, the, the prophets say there's going to be a king that arises. There's going to be a Messiah that comes up on the scene. There is a one you should look to. And in here, Isaiah says a child will be born. Not just anybody. This is a child that's going to be born. And in his body, in his person, Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament hope. He's the fulfillment of what Isaiah says elsewhere in his, in his book where he, he says that um, you, will you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? Where the kingdom of God was divided and rebelled against and now God's presence is not with his people. God looks on humanity and enters it himself in the body of Christ. God is dwelling with his people. It's what John says at the beginning of his chapter, of his book. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And what did that light do? That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Skip down to verse 14. That word became flesh and dwelt among us. He observed his glory, the glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, through his life and through his teaching and through his work, demonstrates the nearness of God's kingdom. Quite literally, in Mark, when he goes on, to do the work that God has called him to do. It says in Mark that he went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. That was his message. Like, like we get all mixed up if we don't see that God in Christ was bringing the kingdom near. That Jesus was about the kingdom of God. 
his miracles, his teachings, his resurrection, all pushed back against the darkness of this world, signifying the inbreaking of God's kingdom. All of it. And then even when you look forward to in Acts, when he goes back to the Father and he sends his disciples, we're very familiar with them being sent out as his, uh, as his messengers, as his ministers, as missionaries, witnesses. I was looking for the word, I found it. The witnesses. And what was their question they asked? They said, will you now restore the kingdom? That's what they're looking for. And Jesus like, look, it's not up to you. You're not gonna find that out. The kingdom is here in you, but it's not fully restored yet because the full restoration comes in Revelation. Look at nine, uh, Isaiah 9, verse 7. What happens in Revelation? The dominion will be vast. Its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. We heard this phrase, the Lord of armies. Um, I think we were, we were instructed, Micah, I believe in his message, clarified that it, it, it's, it's where we also see the Lord Almighty often interpreted, that it's the power of God and his authority demonstrated here. And what Isaiah is pointing to, I don't think any of us would say we see today. Anybody? Justice and righteousness reigning in your life? In the world? It's not. We're somewhere in between Jesus and Revelation. And if you're not familiar, do you know why it's called Revelation? Because when Jesus came in the first advent that we see, he came veiled, really. He's in the body, but his glory was not fully revealed. If you look at the particular message uh, or the part of the story where you see um, him on the mount in the, um, oh my goodness, now I'm losing the, Transfiguration. Wow, Aaron, that's why you're here. Uh, the transfiguration, it's not in my notes. I should never do that. Okay, the transfiguration, that's a portion, that's his glory being revealed in the body. They saw but a fraction of his glory. But the revelation of Jesus Christ is Christ coming in full glory. It's the revealing of the king. And remember that when the king comes in full glory, in justice, and unrighteousness can't stand. And that's why when Revelation 19 says the king comes, John says he saw heaven opened up and there was a white horse and its rider is called faithful and true and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. Jesus, anybody? The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, the Lord of armies, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the almighty. And he has a name written on his robe, on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It is, it seems somewhat disheartening to think that is hopeful. It's, to, it's judgment. But yet it is hope because God doesn't want you to be under the judgment that's to come. 
The hope is that he makes all things right and true. The King of kings and Lord of lords comes in righteousness and justice and peace and sets it back to Eden. And then we get the picture at Revelation 21 where all of the nations are around the throne and it says this in verse three, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people's and God himself will be with them and be their God. You see? I hope you're as excited about this as I am. That, that God is now dwelling with his people in Revelation. But the question that has to be asked and that the, the second one I want to address, what I want to talk about with us is this. If God's program of re, uh, reestablishing his kingdom is in the future is incomplete. I think some people have a trouble when we talk about this already not yet idea, right? Jesus came, the kingdom is near, but you still have really, really difficult coworkers to work with. But your kids just don't seem to want to listen to what you have them say. But your brothers and sisters are kind of a pain. Relationships are hard. Love is, is hard to come by. Hard to show. Like, I just can't get things right today, God. I know you sent Jesus, you, Jesus sent the disciples out into all the world to be his witnesses, but we're still there. And so as we are Christ's witnesses, the question I want us to ask is, how does Advent give us, I'm reading it from there, how does Advent give us hope for today? And this is by no means exhaustive because we would not be here all day. We would be here all day. We would. I want to give you four realities that I think we see in Christ's advent that should give us hope. And the first is this. The character of God is revealed. The character of God is revealed. What do I mean by that? Through Jesus, we see God's righteousness, grace, justice, love, and peace personified. We see it. In John chapter 1, continuing in verse 18, John tells us that no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. See, the difficulty in the Old Testament when I talk about people having hope for the future and how I say, let's not be too judgy about Old Testament folk because we'd be right there with them is it's difficult to see and believe, well, better yet, it's, it's difficult to believe what you can't see. You experience that? You feel that? Like, God, are you really good? The Old Testament, as in today, they're, they're suffering in all forms of ways. And there's what is known as kind of a perceived hiddenness of God. Where are you? Why aren't you here doing anything? That's what we heard in the Minor Prophets. Why are you letting this happen? Why aren't you doing anything? And simultaneously, there's also kind of a, if you don't know and you don't trust him, a capriciousness to God. Is he going to kill me now? Is he going to kill me later? God has the power. He can do it. Do you understand that tension? Do you see that in the Old Testament, as the prophets are trying to explain to God's people the love he has for them, their day-to-day -day life didn't feel like it. 
They're like, why do these people up here have it so much better? Why are we having so many struggles? Why is it that this nation is blessed and we seem to have all the leftover? Aren't you the great God? The truth is that we can now on this side of the cross look to Jesus and see the character of God revealed. His very nature. He didn't want to remain hidden, but he wanted to show us who he was. In Hebrews 1, at the very beginning of the book, this is exactly what the author tells us. He tells us that long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. The son that God, imagine this, that God willingly pursued us by entering humanity in the flesh says something about his nature. Paul says that Christ set his glory aside and became a helpless baby. Remind, he had the glory of heaven and earth. Did he need us? No. But in his character, in his love, in his grace, he set aside that glory to take on humanity as a weak helpless baby and then we can see in the life and teachings of Jesus the character of God his worst critics try to condemn him for ministering to the down and out the sinners look at him he's a friend of sinners he's eating with and drinking with with those people the kind of character of a God who not only comes into the flesh but goes to the weakest and the sick even his birth announcements first came to the outcast. You know that? The shepherds, the really smelly ones that hang out with sheep, they're not really the best. I'm, not, I'm talking about the shepherds, the sheep that smell. It's kind of dumb. It's amazing that we're called sheep. Smelly and dumb. Wow, I'm sorry. That's a whole other message. But, but he came to them first. They're outside the camp. They were kind of the weird people. And that's where the announcement and glory came with the angels when the sky split open. The intentional love that we see and the compassion that Jesus shows for the lost, for those who are far from him, that he sits and he looks over a crowd of people and it says over and over again, Jesus has compassion because they are sheep without a shepherd. Who's he give a hard time to? Who's he reject? The ones that should know better. The religious people that were setting barriers up to the rest of the people the ones who were not letting them see and know the love of God, those are the ones he stiff-armed, the proud. And said, he said, come near to me, all those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And why is this so important for us to consider? Why is it important to recognize that the nature and character of God is fully represented in Christ? Because it's an encouragement to us that we can trust him. That we can trust him. Because if you're placing your hope in someone's promise, even if it's God's, you have to trust them. I don't care how good your promise is. If I don't trust you, it doesn't matter. And this question is never greater than when you are face-to-face -face with the anguish of this world. When you are wrestling with a relationship in your family because you want to make it right, but you don't want to compromise on what God's told you to do, but you can't fix it. You have to trust him. 
When, when, when it seems like the only way for you to get the job is to compromise, you have to trust him. When your friends want to go this way and you know you should go that way, you've got to trust him that God's promises are good. And when you're in the midst of your darkest pain, you are hurting when this world makes no sense, when your health is failing, when you have no idea how you're going to pay your next bill. Beloved, you can trust God's character. That God is working for your good. That, that, that God is working in Christ for the restoration of his kingdom. And when you face injustice, when you face those struggles, you don't have to vindicate yourself because he is just and righteous and we can trust him as the only good judge. Secondly, we see that in the Advent, we can find hope that the power of God is displayed in Christ. Christ's resurrection and overcoming of sin and death showcases God's power to fulfill his promise. This is what Romans 8, 11 tells us. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then who, the who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. It doesn't matter how much you trust someone. You have to also believe they have the power to keep your promise, right? I'm just saying, I mean, my daughter could be like, Dad, I really want to contribute. Adeline, she'd be like, I'm going to contribute to the household. I'm going to go get a job making six figures so we can help pay the mortgage. I'd be like, you know what? You have a good heart, honey. You do not have the power to do that right now. <laughs> and that's only a simple example, but we have to believe that God has the power to do it. And what we see in the incarnation is the almighty power of the creator entered humanity as a fragile baby. That's a power move. I'm sorry. That's a power move, that he took on himself humanity in a way of crushing Satan's sin and death, and they didn't see it coming. Christ teaches with authority, demonstrating his power and freeing us from misunderstandings about God and the law. Christ conquers demons, showing his power over the darkness. Christ heals people, showing his power over the effects of sin in our life. Christ forgives people, showing his power over sin and guilt. Christ conquers sin, death, and the grave and freeing us from the power of the evil one forever. See, the power of God is on display in Christ. We can not only trust God to keep his promise, but you can believe he has the power to defeat the kingdom of darkness and restore righteousness, justice, and peace. Because his power is on display. And friends, it's tempting on a regular basis, and it seems like a new reason every different time of the year to look out on the world around us and the darkness we see and to feel despair. It's tempting. I can't tell you. I mean, just look at, you could look it up yourself. Any number of articles about how the church is going to go down in America if they don't do this, that, and the other thing. How Christianity is on the doorstep of going away. I'm sorry. <laughs> the kingdom of darkness is never winning. 
Like, never. Like, this isn't light and dark, ooh, who is going back and forth. They are not ever winning. And so for me, as I see the power of God in Christ, I want you to be encouraged because you never have to despair. The darkest moments of your days today, you know that there is more power in Christ than anything that will ever turn your, your world upside down. So we see that we can trust him in his character. We see the power of God on display in Christ. Thirdly, we see an example for our life as a child of God. There's an example for our life. Jesus' life as a human shows us how to live fully dependent on God. We see it in him. Peter talks about this in his first letter, chapter 2. He tells us this. You were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. What is the example he left? What did he leave? He showed us the example of what it looks like to follow, Christ, follow God in suffering. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Friends, that's where we are most tempted. That is where we are most tempted. If life is good and things are great, who's... who's who, who is tempted to walk away from God? You got to walk good. But it's in the moments of suffering like, like where, where Peter says when you're insulted, when, when, when you were suffering unjustly at others' hands, when you were being threatened, do you retaliate? Because that's not Jesus' example. Peter says his example is to not compromise to not color outside the lines. That, that the enemy will try, make, try to make everything look appealing, everything else look appealing, but full obedience and trust in God. They're going to make everything in this world look more appealing than trusting, as Peter says, the one who judges justly, the God who raised Christ from the dead. So we see in Jesus, we see an example for how we live. If we trust him, if we know God has the power, how do we live in the midst of suffering? How do we face temptation? Will Christ resist temptation? Even Hebrews says, we, we have a great high priest that has faced every temptation just as you have, yet without sin. Christ shows us what it means to be a disciple, to be one who follows God, and he sends out his disciples to make others. When he talks about his disciples and he discusses with them all the anxieties of the world in Matthew chapter 6, he says, don't worry saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. What does he tell them to do in verse 33? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. The example we see in Jesus is the example he set for us as believers, those who are followers of Christ, that we should be seeking first the kingdom of God and entrusting everything else to him. And this is when it gets a little bit kind of like, oh, let me try really hard. That's not what I'm saying because there's one more thing we see. In the incarnation, we are empowered in our life as a child of God. Jesus didn't do it on his own. What did he tell you? He says, I only do what the Father does, and he only did it by the power of the Spirit. As a human in the flesh, 
Christ himself worked by the power of the Spirit in him. With the Holy Spirit as believers, we are empowered to live in hope, no longer enslaved to sin, but manifesting the fruit of the Spirit in our life. So, so now we can trust God. We know he has the power to do what he's going to do, but we're sitting in this, what do we do now, phase. And we see Christ's example, but that seems overwhelming. Did you hear that Christ has resisted all temptation? You think, I can't do that. Did you hear that, that Christ stood in the face of suffering and he kept his mouth closed? He was insulted and he didn't insult back. And you're like, you know what? I gotta, I gotta clap back. Christ tells us that with his spirit in us, you and I, this is such a lie. This is such a lie. You are not defeated in Christ. If you are in Christ and his spirit is in you, you have the power to live as Christ did. There is authority in the spirit of God in you and we need to stop acting like God has no power in this world today. We need to stop acting and believing and living like there is no power in the spirit in you. Romans chapter eight, Paul tells those who are listening, he says, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh living to live according to the flesh. We have no obligation there. If you ever believe that you will never be able to resist the flesh, Paul says you got no obligation there. Because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Why? For all those led by the God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This, this is so important because I know it's overwhelming. I know that it can seem too far to grasp to believe that you as a person, a human on earth could ever live as Christ did. He was perfect and only me wrong. We've already, we've already messed that up. You don't need Jesus if you live perfectly and I'm gonna go ahead and cast that no one here has. But that does not mean that you have to remain a slave to sin. And if we learn anything from the incarnation and we see when Christ conquers sin on the cross, when he conquers death in his resurrection, when he conquers the kingdom of darkness by bringing light into the world, he did not send out weak, feeble, frail people to say, hey, best of luck. He said, I will send my comforter. Wait now for the Holy Spirit because he will bring you power. And in that power, you will be my witnesses. So don't ever believe that you have trusted in Christ and sit at home saying, woe is me. This is just a sin that's gonna beat me down. It might not go easily because sin and Satan never goes quietly. But it's worth going to battle over and Christ has promised that the spirit will be with you. In fact, before he leaves, he says, I will be with you always. 
we look forward to the second advent of Christ as we see it in Revelation, where we see Jesus' full glory on display. And he's bringing final justice and peace. But right now, our current hope is not just for the future. It's not just for the future. Brothers and sisters, we don't join together just to reminisce and hope for a tomorrow. When I say that, that it's not just a ticket to heaven, that is one of the most detrimental situations for your soul, to be sitting here thinking that I am tolerating my existence today so that one day I might be in the presence of the Lord. No, but now, Christ's advent transforms our present. And we live in the reality of God's kingdom here and now. Like, like Christ brought the kingdom to earth. The series, we titled it this on purpose, Your Kingdom Come on Earth as it is in Heaven. It's from, the, it's from the prayer. Because our desire is that in your heart, in your life, and in everything you do, that the kingdom of God will be present. And everything you do would be, as Jesus said, to seek first the kingdom of God. And that we have in this the reality of God's kingdom here and now, and we are empowered and guided by his spirit to live it out. And there's hope. There's hope in that. Because sin doesn't crush us. Because the enemy cannot destroy us. Because we know a God who is more powerful than anything in this world can throw at you. That he is worthy of our trust because he is good and kind and gracious and loving and long-suffering. He would never cast you aside. Why would he send his son to earth just to say, well, you know what, but you screwed up one more time and that's too much for me. He will pursue you to the end. And we can trust that his spirit will empower us to live the same. Would you pray with me? Father, in your kindness, thank you for Christ that we can celebrate his coming in the flesh. And Lord, we can find hope. And God, I pray that even as I've worked through this sermon, that Lord, you ultimately would be glorious. Lord, that our hope would rest in you. And that our hope would to see, would to be to see the restoration of your kingdom. That we would live as kingdom people, that we would walk this earth by the power of the Spirit, trusting that you today still work in power, just as you did through your Son. And God, I ask that we would trust in you and know you and seek you, and God, be close to you and near to you, and Lord, that the grace and kindness and love that you showed us in Christ would overflow into the world around us that sees us day in and day out. And we ask all this in his glorious name. Amen.